You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of March 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. Coming up on today's program. These people died because humanitarian aid has not been able to uh, be delivered in a safe manner. One of the deadliest incidents in an already deadly war in Gaza draws international condemnation, but also another U.S. veto at the United Nations. We'll have the latest. After that, we'll delve into Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni's trip to the United States and Canada. We'll explore why Germany has once again become the sick man of Europe, and we'll hear from the film composer Max Richter. I wanted to really represent the character of this slightly decrepit spaceship floating through space, which was a big metal resonating object. So I thought, I need some big metal resonating objects. So we, we made an ensemble of 12 timpani. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. Over the last 24 hours, there has been a wave of international condemnation over an incident in Gaza where facts on the ground, as ever in this ongoing war, have been quite difficult to parse. What does seem clear is that more than 100 people died and 700 were injured during chaotic scenes as civilians in the northern Gaza city tried to access food aid. It is also clear that Israeli defense forces claiming to protect the aid aid convoy were using live fire. Israel insists they fired mostly warning shots, but eyewitness accounts claim they fired directly at the aid convoy and crowd. Whatever happened, it is among the worst single catastrophic events of this war. And I'm joined for more now by Abir Ayoub, a Palestinian journalist currently based in Istanbul. Abir, this is an awful tragedy, as I sort of laid out there, no matter what the exact circumstances were. But what is your sense at this point of exactly what happened on the ground? Hi, so uh, what we uh, got from the eyewitnesses, uh, the eyewitnesses I talked to is that they went to uh, Al-Nabulsi roundabout uh, near the seaport uh, so they can get flour that has been missing in Gaza for the past uh, months. Uh, And then at 4 a.m. when the trucks made it to, um, to, to that roundabout, people uh, rushed to uh, over the trucks to get some flour, and they say then the quad captors started shooting at them. At the beginning, it was to disperse them, but later, eyewitnesses say that it was directly at them and that they saw themselves dead bodies here and there. They had to step over the dead bodies, uh, but most of them got nothing because they knew that there was a horrific thing happening. Abir, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has demanded an investigation of this, as have many other nations. Is that even possible right now in your mind? What what can be done to figure out what happened on the ground? 
I believe it is hard, uh, but uh, it's a thing that uh, indeed should happen because uh, uh, people say that we were directly targeted while uh, uh, the Israeli army is saying we were there to protect the trucks and to, uh, and it wasn't us who shot at them. So there should be uh, an investigation happening, but with this situation, with the borders are, are being closed, with the, no um, human rights groups are able to work in Gaza with this uh, very dangerous situation it is hard but if there is an enough cooperation between international organizations and authorities this this can be possible however really hard and abir i mean how dire is the humanitarian situation in gaza at the moment that unleashed such a chaotic scene when these food aid trucks appeared regardless of sort of what happened in that specific instance i mean how rare an occurrence is the arrival of aid at this moment yeah uh, what happened tells uh, you exactly uh, how hard the situation uh, there in Gaza in the north uh, uh, in particular because so when when I talked to eyewitnesses who were there I asked them like didn't you know that it was dangerous to go there they said uh, it we knew it was dangerous but we are literally starving there's no flour and uh, uh, f- prices of basic goods such as uh, pasta, rice, and flour is jumping to um, like 10 times more, uh, 20 times more uh, people uh, literally eating animals feed. And um, the the situation in the north where half a million Palestinians are staying is getting worse Uh, every day. We have children who have been dying the past couple of days due to the lack of food and clean water. So what would push people towards such uh, like to be in the middle of crossfire uh, if they are not really starving? And what is your sense of the international response over the last 24 hours? Has there been something different in your mind about sort of the level of condemnation for this? Yeah, to be honest, yes. I I didn't expect uh, all this, uh, you know, condemnation and uh, and uh, demands for, for investigation to happen because I believe that uh, such uh, incidents happened uh, since the beginning of the war, and we are talking about four months of war. Uh, now we are saying uh, we are talking about thirty thousands being killed, and they, a lot uh, of of them were killed in um, UN schools or hospitals, or you know, like a lot of uh, incidents uh, that uh, had to be subjected to uh, to an investigation. Uh, so it was surprising to me, but maybe uh, because it was um, about hungry people fighting to get food and then they got killed. Maybe like how how hard um, this is for people to know, like people uh, maybe because uh, it was reported that starvation uh, is being used as uh, as a weapon um this is why the all these uh, condemnations and calls for investigations happened well and the us says it is also trying to gather all the facts or wants to gather all the facts but once again was the only country to block a un security council resolution or motion that condemned this incident and blamed israel for firing on the crowd 
I wonder if you have any sense of where we go from here on that. There are still negotiations in New York at the moment. Yeah, um, as you said, it's really uh, complicated and it's surprising to me that uh, um, four months of starvation, four months of uh, calls for a ceasefire, uh, two million Palestinians are being trapped uh, in in such a small enclave. And now, uh, because this happened, I believe it's maybe because of the reactions the incident got from the people, like everyone was talking about it and it was all over the media. Maybe the US had to do, um, had to do a statement, but the situation has been uh, this bad for for the the past month, and uh, we have been talking to people um, starving, talking about their children starving, and, and no real effort uh, was you know was was done uh, before this uh, this you know disaster happened. Abir Ayub, thank you very much for joining us on a difficult subject. Now here's Monocle's Carlotta Rabella with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. People are gathering in Moscow for the funeral of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The service is taking place at a church in Marino, on the outskirts of the capital, where there is heavy police presence. Five nations have pledged security personnel to an international force being assembled to help the police in Haiti to fight armed gangs. The Bahamas, Bangladesh, Barbados, Benin and Chad have formally notified the United Nations of their intent to contribute to the foreign security mission. And Singapore has announced it will buy eight more F-35 stealth fighter jets to significantly upgrade its air force. The purchase of the new aircraft from Lockheed Martin will eventually replace Singapore's older F-16. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Carlotta. Now, when Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni and her far-right Brothers of Italy party were swept to power in 2022, it would have been hard to imagine that she would get an invite to the White House. But Meloni has moderated her policies and image somewhat since becoming Italy's leader, and today she will be meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden in Washington, D.C., She'll also be meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau over the weekend. Well, joining me for more on this is Claudio Lavanga, an NBC News journalist based in Rome. Claudio, thanks very much for coming on the show. What are Meloni's priorities going to be on this North America trip? Good morning, Chris. Well, you're right. Uh, you were right to remind everyone that uh, she was welcomed with some sort of uh, skepticism when she won the election in 2023 by Biden, who expressed concern because, of course, she is the leader of, uh, you know, the uh, on the first far right, some say extreme right party uh, that has come uh, in power in Italy since the Second World War. But then since then, she's proved to be uh, the staunchest and most reliable uh, ally to the United States and to the alliance in general and to NATO, surprisingly. And that's why. Uh, she's been invited to the White House for a second time uh, after uh, July last year. And that is a sign of, of course, support by Biden to Meloni. Now, what's on the agenda uh, is all the topics that are high on, on both agendas of so Biden and Meloni. It's going to be Ukraine, Israel, Yemen, the Red Sea, the Indo-Pacific, uh, artificial intelligence. But I'll start, of course, with the with the big uh, the big topic is going to be Ukraine and uh, Biden and Meloni are aligned uh, on that topic because both have said that they do support the two state solution at the end of this uh, conflict and in the in the future, uh, as well as they are pushing 
uh, Israel to allow humanitarian aid to be delivered uh, into uh, into uh, Gaza. Uh, but since they last met in Washington last July, a lot has changed, of course, because now Biden is finding difficulties in uh, getting House Republicans to approve funds uh, for Ukraine. And then there's a real prospect uh, that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican candidate and may even win the election uh, at the end of this year, uh, which, of course, is going to change completely geopolitics in Ukraine. Also, because, as, as you know, just recently, he warned countries that haven't paid their dues to NATO, that famous 2% of the GDP that uh, NATO members are supposed to uh, dedicate uh, to the defense spending. Uh, Italy is one of those that do not do that. Uh, they are spending 1.5% uh, for now, so they need to push for that because Trump has already threatened that he will allow Trump, uh, Putin to do what the hell he wants. I'm just quoting Trump, of course, uh, if they don't, if they don't do so. Um, and then probably they're going to talk about also the concerns that uh, Biden may have uh, of uh, people within the government that may not be so uh, supportive of Ukraine. Uh, and against Putin, we're talking about the, the vice prime minister, Matteo Salvini, who's been a longtime supporter uh, of um, of Putin. And, and he hasn't changed his tune uh, ever since, to the point that just last week when Navalny uh, died, uh, he was the only uh, leader in the European Union, I think, uh, or in the Western world that said, oh, we should really, you know, we can't uh, jump to conclusions. We should just let the judges and, and doctors in Russia decide how to decide how it died uh and then of course you know there's the other topics as israel and again you know they um they they, they do agree on on the two-state solution and and all that but meloni went as far as saying that ukraine and gaza are somewhat connected something that biden might not agree upon he said she said that she thinks that russia uh if russia had not invaded ukraine then hamas would have not uh launched the October the 7th attack. Um, but that's something that, you know, I don't know whether they're going to discuss that, but it's something that they, they might not agree upon. Um, then there's Yemen and the Red Sea and the consequences and, and, the, and the wider repercussions uh, from the Gaza war into the region. Uh, Italy, again, you know, has proved to be a very strong ally uh, to the United States uh, and to Western, the Western alliance. Um, they joined two missions in the Red Sea. Uh, they're escorting, helping to escort and protect commercial vessels um, that have been attacked by Houthi re uh, rebels recently, of course. Uh, one is the American-led Prosperity Guardian. The other one is the Aspides, which is the European Union uh, one. Uh, but they haven't so far taken part in um, the military attacks uh, that the US and, and the UK um, have uh, carried out in Yemen against Houthi rebels because they say, because Italy says that it needs approval uh, by the government first, which they have never even asked for anyway. Uh, then there are other topics, the Indo-Pacific, uh, with particular focus on Taiwan. Uh, last year, Meloni and Biden agreed on, you know, the importance of maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. And Meloni, most importantly, since they last met last July, in December, a few months later, um, proved once again she's aligned with the U.S. and the Western alliance in general. Um, when in December she announced that Italy will back out uh, of the of China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, and it was four years ago it was the only G7 nation that signed up to it. So that's another strong proof of her alignment. So this is going to be 
uh, a very uh, you know amicable uh, meeting um, between President Biden and and you know one of the most ex- unexpected uh, leaders in Europe that have proved to be the staunchest and most reliable uh, ally. Claudio, just very quickly, um, how is this all playing domestically? If you can speak to that at all, how is her appearance internationally playing on the on the stage back in Italy at home? Is she popular with this kind of these these international sort of moments, G seven as well that she's leading? Well, she's uh, proved once again when she came into power in twenty twenty two. There were con- there was concern about. You know, uh, what she will do, especially in the European Union, because uh, she's been one of the staunchest, the, the, the greatest critics of the European Union as uh, leaders of far-right parties go. Uh, so that was no surprise. And so the concern was that uh, she would um, take Italy, move Italy away from the European Union. And instead, uh, she has changed completely her tune and she has become uh, one of the uh, biggest fans, let's put it that way, of Italy's role in the European Union as well as in the Western Alliance. So let's say that Italians in that sense are presently surprised. Claudio Lavanga, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. You are back with The Briefing on Monaco Radio and I'm Chris Chermak. For much of this week, Germany has been selectively suffering from a wave of strikes in public transport. The Union Verdi has been directing local chapters to strike on different days across all German states, basically with the exception of Bavaria. The strikes in public transport, in aviation and other sectors have added to a recent sense of doom and gloom about the German economy. With word in the last month that Europe's largest economy was in recession last year. Well, joining me now is Karsten Berzeski, the global head of macro at ING Research. He joins us from Hamburg. Karsten, how bad is the German economy? Let's just start with that. It's sort of barely in recession, but it still doesn't look good. No, it definitely doesn't look good. Um, how, how bad is it? Um, judge for yourself. You know, since the start of the war in Ukraine, the German economy hasn't grown at all. So we, we have been in, in a stagnation since early 2022. And when I when I look at uh, at all indicators for, for 2024, it looks as if we're going to see another year of stagnation, maybe even a small recession. Um, and this would be the first time since the early 2000s that um, Germany will be in recession for two years in a row. So I think this entire debate on whether or not Germany is the new segment of Europe um, can be very easily answered. Yes, it is the segment of Europe. And, and where does that come from, this return to being the sick man of Europe? I mean, what, what happened? It was going so well for a while. It had lost that moniker. Are there structural reasons at this point that are, that are bringing it back to this, that are you know, unique to Germany? I mean, the Eurozone is frankly not doing that much better, but it is a little better. No, correct. There, there, there is a long list of reasons, and I think you, you could do an entire show just, just on Germany and explaining these reasons. So I'll, I'll keep it brief. Um, there, there are indeed what I call the cyclical factors, the cyclical headwinds, and this is what what, what all other European uh, economies are are facing, and that is uh, high inflation, that is higher interest rates, um, and and that is also the, the the lack of qualified workers. But then there are a bit more specifics to to Germany, and and one is the the high dependence on on China. 
and uh, with China now having become a, a rival and no longer just a very nice, interesting export destination for, for Germany, um, this is clearly weighing on, on, on the German economy. That is one. Um, energy prices, energy uncertainty. Um, Germany has really benefited a lot from, from cheap energy from Russia over the last 10, 15 years, and this is gone now. And, and the German industry is still struggling to find a, a new normal. Um, and, and then there is this gradual loss in international competitiveness. You can just look at all kind of international rankings. And 10 years ago, Germany was, was top notch, top of the bill between the top five most competitive economies in the world. Now, over the last 10 years, they, they dropped down on, and they are now between 15, rank uh, 20 on, on, on these lists. And what are the reasons? Too little investments in infrastructure, digitalization, education. Um, you mentioned the strikes. So there are so many structural reasons why Germany is now really in this stagnation but it also means it won't be very easy um, to get out of it um, quickly. On the strikes specifically, I mean, you had a really long list there, but I wonder if the strikes themselves are just kind of a sign of frustration about all of that. I mean, do businesses, does the industry have the bandwidth to pay higher wages to help out, to help out their workers, given all of that stuff that you're suggesting? Yeah, well, I think if you if you were to ask uh, any employer, there is never a good time to go for a wage rise. <laughs> so, um, and um, but look look at the, the workers. Um, so Germany yeah, in in the good um, times. So let's say at least until 2019. So Germany had really ten golden years. In these golden years, um, there were hardly any wage increases. So Germany also went for wage moderation to to re, to remain international uh, internationally competitive. So now I think it is it is fair for these workers to see hey we we want to catch up. We want to see an improvement in our purchasing power. To your question, you know, are employers are companies in in a position to to offer higher wages when when we look especially at 2022 and also 2020 23, um, you know, most company profits were, were still up, were still good. So I think as long as wage increases are only a one-off catching up and not so much a longer series of several um, wage increases, I think a lot is to say, uh, I think it makes sense to go for, for higher wages because it would also help making the German economy a bit more balanced because that has been the criticism for such a long while. Germany needs more domestic demand and there couldn't be domestic demand without um, strong purchasing powers. And just one other aspect of this, Carsten, the German government, the coalition, the Greens, the Social Democrats, the, the Free Democrats, they're, they're pretty unpopular right now in Germany. Is there something that they can do about this? They're trying, they're trying to look at a growth package, but they're also speaking in quite dire terms, aren't they? I mean, the economy minister, Robert Habeck, has made these statements that the economy is awful, basically. Is it tr sort of, what are they trying to do at this point? Shake people out of complacency? 
well, I think they're first of all they're waking up to reality themselves because the uh, the minister of finance, for example, just one or two months ago, uh, was saying that Germany was in a, in a, in, a, in a good shape uh, and it just had had a very long growth party and only needed one strong um, cup of coffee in order to get back in shape. Well, th this narrative has clearly changed now. So I think it took the government also quite a while to realize that this is not only a cyclical issue, but that Germany really has these structural weaknesses. Well, now we're there where there is this awareness, the the acknowledging of the structural factors. Um, and the only problem is that this current government somehow internally is so divided um, and, and is clearly not working together. That And that is an, another well horrible fun fact. And we now have the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Economic Affairs, which will both individually investigate strategies to get out of the current uh, economic weakness. But they're not working together, so every, each ministry will set up its own proposal. This is not going to work. So I think what we, need, what we would need right now is a government which really works together, which really communicates very clearly, and in which th all three coalition partners um, – are cooperating for one uh, single program, one single strategy. And it's not an easy one because there is not this one silver bullet that would immediately bring Germany back to, to stellar growth. So what Germany needs right now is, a, is really in, a new reform program, which will have to last for five to ten years, which will include many structural changes, which will also include quite some investment. And as long as um, any German government sticks to the so-called debt break, so sticks to um, austerity measures, I cannot see how there will be any program of, 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 of a certain meaning um, coming out of Berlin. Good luck to the German government on that. Carson Brzezki, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, on today's show, how do you create a film score that's frankly out of this world? Well, a new film arriving on Netflix today, Spaceman, stars Adam Sandler as a lonely astronaut floating in space and follows his befriending of a giant spider. Yes, I didn't read that correctly. The composer and contemporary classical artist Max Richter created the film's ethereal score and spoke to Monocle's Robert Bound about the process. Congratulations on the beautiful ethereal soundtrack for Spaceman. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, it's obviously a, a film about the far reaches of space, but also very much about inner space as well. I wondered what your starting palette was for this work. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the whole film is very metaphorical in terms of its you know, relationships uh, between the two principles and how that plays out and is expressed in this kind of journey into deep space so 
I guess the emotional core of the film, I felt did have to have some traditional instrumentation, even though it's a sci-fi. Um, so there is an orchestra, there's a 70 piece orchestra, which we recorded here at the studio, but, you know, in keeping with, in a sense, the production design, which is a very seventies influenced production design, I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to subvert all this material via kind of seventies analog technology. So we've got an orchestra playing, but a lot of the time it sounds kind of synthy or very spaced out. Um, and it's processed via the kind of tech that you hear on early Pink Floyd records, you know, and that sort of stuff. So it gives it a kind of a sonic fingerprint of the 70s, but it's like the 70s in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. And second thing is that, you know, this is a film which is very kind of suffused with the culture of Bohemia. So I thought about, you know, what could I reach into in terms of Czech Bohemian music culture, which... I could use as a kind of jumping off point. And I remembered that there's a kind of a bohemian equivalent of Bach, 18th century composer called Zelenka. His music is like Bach on acid. It's very weird, but Bach. And then I thought, well, there's a wonderful coincidence here because Carey's character is actually called Lenka. Mm -hmm. So it was so, so beautiful that, you know, Zelenka's name sort of incorporates Carey's character's name in the film. So I was like, okay, so I've got to go there. So, you know, I looked back through the scores and borrowed some of his sort of harmonic practice and wrote a bunch of, if you like, fake Zelenka, which we then recorded with my crazed 1970s trippy orchestra. <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to really represent the character of this slightly decrepit spaceship floating through space, which was a big metal resonating object. So I thought... I need some big metal resonating objects. So we, we made an ensemble of 12 timpani uh, in the studio here. So this big flotilla of timpani with all these guys hitting them in different ways. So we made this kind of timpani, boomy, sort of drony, kind of a metal language. So yeah, so all of these things, those are the kind of palette, really. All those things are so alive in the film and each sort of play their part like a character, I suppose, as, as well. And it's fascinating to know that you came up with a sort of musical language for the big old tin can that is the spaceship itself, rattling, rattling towards this black hole or whatever it might be, is wonderful as well. And there are two pieces of music that you used, Dvorak as well, Rusalka, which is beautiful, the sort of soaring operatic sort of arias of that. That, again, presumably comes from this bohemian Czech world. Tell us a little bit about incorporating that. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, Johan is so clever with music. Uh, Rusalka, of course, you know, bohemian piece of music, Vorjak, 1901. But the piece he's used from Rusalka is not just anything, but it's the song to the moon. Mm. Not, not by chance, right? <laughs> I mean, this is very, he's a very clever director. So he had that in there. Right. And it's, of course, a gorgeous piece. And I thought, wonderful to sort of blend in and out of that from time to time yeah i mean that's great and the other thing that we clearly cannot leave you without exploring as the titles roll you've duetted with no less than sparks for don't go away which is i was like hang on because i didn't know this was coming up until the end of the the end of the movie so what was the genesis of the genesis of that collaboration max yeah i mean we thought about 
you know, let's let's look at the idea of an, an end title song, which can in some way reflect on the material of the film. So I, I you know, I wrote a sketch, and Johan was friends with Sparks, and uh, sent a note to Russell and Ron, and um, they were totally into the idea, uh, which is great. So they then, you know, they wrote some lyrics and the, the vocal lines for the song, and um, yeah, I mean, it's a pleasure working with them. You know, I mean, for me. You know, I remember seeing Sparks on Top of the Pops when I was about 11, and it was the most mind-blowing slash terrifying thing I'd ever seen <laughs> in my life. They played um, uh, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, which was, a, I mean, it was top 10 record, I think, at the time. And um, I literally, I, I didn't know what was happening. I was seeing this so bizarre, this music. But, you know, they're great. They're absolutely great. So it was a, it was a real pleasure uh, working with them. The composer Max Richter there speaking to Monaco's Robert Bound. Spaceman is available to watch on Netflix now. And that is all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb. Our researcher was Neoma Akwe. And our studio manager was Steph Chungu with editing assistance from Lily Austin. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I'm Chris Chermak. Have a good weekend and thanks for listening. <laughs>